0: Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. The first person in the UK believed to have died due to COVID-19 was a woman in her 70s on the 5th of March. The current death toll is around 42,000. A number that large is hard to process, but each person had their own story and loved ones who missed them. My guest today has made it her mission to tell some of these stories. Shirin Collett has written for titles including Vice, Wired, GQ and Vogue, and you can find her work most regularly in The Guardian. Since early August, she's been writing a weekly series for the paper called Lost to the Virus, in which she profiles individual victims of COVID-19. She's with me today to talk about that series and the challenges of journalism during a pandemic. Hi, Sharon, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: So each of these profiles is, is quite a piece of work. They're not, they're not thumbnail sketches. How did you end up taking on this project?
1: So um, I can't Really take any credit for the idea. It was um it was given to me by The Guardian um by my uh, editor, Kira Cochrane She said, look, the uh, profiles can go up to four thousand words each. And I, I I honestly thought that I'd misheard her <laughs> because that's not the sort of word count that you get given very often in a newspaper. I mean there's about a thousand words off a long read. What that word count um and sort of the generosity of having all that space allowed me to do was really tell those stories with the depth and care that they deserved. And what was quite important for me as well was for me to find stories of people where it wasn't just an instance of uh, sort of egregious misfortune, but there was quite a clear institutional failing or failings that led to their deaths. So I sort of spent quite a lot of time really thinking quite carefully about which stories I wanted to tell and why I wanted to tell those stories, because I think that the only way that you can really make sense of the pandemic is through the individual. And the only way you can make sense of what went wrong in the pandemic is through looking at sort of the bigger themes within the pandemic. So it was quite important to select those people quite carefully.
0: There was one or two names that I did recognise from from press reports, like the transport worker, Belly Majinga. But yeah. there were others that, that I hadn't hadn't come across. How did you sort of find these stories? Were, were these, was it a question of just looking at quite, you know, quite sort of small small news stories or inviting reader suggestions, or how do you find them?
1: When I started off the project, I wrote out a sort of dream list of people that I wanted um, to tell the story of. So I identified the bigger kind of themes in the pandemic. So I knew that I wanted to tell the story of someone who died in a care home. I knew I wanted to tell the story of a doctor or nurse who died. I knew I wanted to tell the story of a frontline worker. I knew I wanted to tell a story that sort of illuminated the BAME deaths within the pandemic because so many people have died. I knew I wanted to tell the story of a disabled person who had died because disabled people died in such high rates during the pandemic. And I also knew that I wanted to tell the story of someone where sort of government inaction and a sort of late lockdown uh, may have contributed to their death. So I kind of worked backwards from that. So once I had those sort of dream stories that I wanted to tell, I then started looking through local newspaper articles like I mean that was a really really big source um I, I think the Vichy Morrison story for example who was the man who died in uh well he died after the attending the athletic Madrid game um in March which was one of the uh well it was actually the last uh mass event to be held the mass football event to be held in the UK that was reported first by the Liverpool Echo and then other stories I found so the COVID-19 bereaved uh, family support group was really really helpful they put me in touch with uh the family of Femi Acinola, who was uh, the final story I told, and I hadn't actually planned to tell this story, but it kind of became quite clear from my reporting the other pieces in the series that one-on-one failings had been a really big scandal during the pandemic, uh, particularly during the early weeks of the pandemic. So, I um, I, I got in touch with Fermi Acinola's family through that group, and actually the only the only story, the only person that I knew straight off going into this um, whole process that I wanted to tell was Belly. And that's because Belly's story, I think, really transcended any one individual's death. Um, Belly Majinga, who was the um, the London transport worker who was allegedly spat at on the concourse in Victoria Station, I think her story became so symbolic, um, and I think she really almost became a kind of myth, a, mytholo- a mythological figure within the UK. Um, and, and you know, her her death directly led into the Black Lives Matter protests, but. I felt that death had been kind of really misreported and and the sort of reporting around that was really one dimensional. There was a lot of focus on finding the person who spat at her, but not a lot of focus on figuring out why she was out there in the first place. Mm. Um, So she was the only person actually that I knew I wanted to tell the story of going into this whole process. Everybody else, I had an image in my mind of the sort of person whose story I wanted to tell. and um, And then I kind of worked backwards from there. And the one other thing I would add is that uh, it was very important that at least half, if not more, of the people were from um, BAME backgrounds um, because they have died disproportionately in the pandemic.
0: And I mean, I know that we, I mean, it looks like we're sort of going into another phase of lockdown, but there was, I think, you know, these first, these uh, pieces started appearing in August, so obviously you've been reporting them for a while. So were you actually able to go to to some of these places or was it all sort of, was it all long-distance lockdown reporting?
1: Uh, it was all long-distance lockdown reporting. Um, I actually started writing the profiles oof, probably in May, which was actually, it was, it was still kind of, Fairly, fairly sort of stringent controls on on movement and I asked uh, permission to meet with some of the families in person but at that point it was denied um, due to sort of understandable health and safety mm. reasons the only person I met with in person was uh, Lusamba uh, Katalai um, who is the uh, husband of Belly Majinga. and that's because Lusamba is a French speaker, He his English is very limited so we needed to have a translator for that interview and it's just too difficult really to do a, an interview via a translator unless you're there in person um so much nuance is lost so um that was the only interview i did in person and um yeah
0: did you, did you find that the families were were keen to talk
1: no i got quite a few rejections finding the family of the london bus driver i knew i wanted to tell the story of a london bus driver it was really hard i reached out to quite a few families and they all said no i was quite careful going into the process um to try and manage families' expectations of what this would involve. So there would be some families who had done press before, but it was it was pretty limited press. You know, it was a local newspaper and it's an 800-word piece and you speak to them for 20 minutes and you get some sort of quotes. And that was not what I wanted to do with these profiles because they were 4,000 words long. So there were a few families that I reached out to who were initially keen to do it and then when I explained look I'm gonna probably want to speak to or you know at least three or four members of your family for at least an hour ideally two maybe even three or four that's a much bigger ask so um so no not everybody was <laughs> biting my hand off but I've had positive feedback from every single family uh, that I've done so far and um and a lot of people have really spoken about how How important it was for them and their families to realise that their loved one wasn't just the statistics and was actually an important person and was sort of documented with the humanity they deserved.
0: Um, Because, like you said, you chose uh, these sort of stories because you wanted to pursue certain uh, bigger stories, systemic failures and so on. It's not, it's not like you were sort of surprised. Uh, to come across them. Um, but when when you're obviously investigating this deeply, there must be stuff obviously that you learn that, that, you, that you didn't know, whether that be, I mean, the, the, the sort of stuff that comes up is the timing of the lockdown, PPE shortages, negligence at care homes, vulnerability of frontline workers, and so on. Even knowing these issues in advance, what discoveries, you know, really shocked you or outraged you or, or felt that, you know, people needed to know more about this particular failing?
1: Uh, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> I knew, for example, that the PPE situation was a complete nightmare. Um, we all did. We all saw the pictures of doctors and nurses wearing bin liners on social media in March. What I hadn't anticipated or sort of calculated for was quite how callous some of the decision making was from central government. So there was a very sort of cynical and, and uh, intended decision to prioritise the PPE stockpile for the NHS frontline. What really got my goat about that was just the level of Deception involved in that which was you know government ministers were issuing directives via Public Health England saying you don't need to wear PPE in care homes it's okay it's not necessary but what they actually meant was you should be wearing PPE but we just don't have enough to go around so we're going to tell you not to wear it and 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 that really I found quite upsetting because I think there was quite a a clear decision made that some lives were more worth saving than others. And the lives that were worth saving whether were, were the people in hospital and the lives that were not worth saving, were the people in care homes and in assisted living facilities in the community. And I, I just find that upsetting. I find that I find that really distressing. That the thought that at some point There was a calculation made and two lives were weighed in the balance and one life was found to be more important. I think the privatisation story is uh, probably going to be one of the biggest scandals of the pandemic in terms of uh, contracts being tendered out without proper public consideration. I mean uh, David Conn at the Guardian has been doing really fantastic reporting around 111 um, and I think that 111 will probably be a really big scandal of this pandemic. I mean it was sort of absolutely nakedly obvious that it was not fit for purpose. 1-on-1 operators had given on average 10 weeks of training um, and there simply weren't enough of them anyway to go around. So uh, you had quite horrific circumstances where people were being told to stay at home, even though they'd been sick for a week, two weeks, could have had silent hypoxia and no one knew. Um, and one of the uh, people that I profiled in uh, loss of the virus, Flemia Akinola, was found dead at home by his family. Um, and he was 60, he was healthy. Um, he would have sort of varied the chance of living had he not been told by 1-on-1 to stay at home and had to been told to go to the hospital. I mean, I could go on. Uh, I, I feel extremely angry about the carnage in our care homes, um, you know. So HC1, which is the operator of the care home in the Isle of Skye, where Colin Harris, who was one of the people I profiled in the series, they paid nearly 50 million pounds in dividends over two years, 2017, 2018. And yet they did not have enough staff at their care home because, well, the wages were so low, they just couldn't retain staff that directly contributed to the infection control risks in the care home, which led to 10 people dying of COVID-19 in, in May and April in that care home. So the thing that I find sort of most the, the most upsetting is that there's a sort of desire amongst people to move on and to chalk all of these deaths up to bad luck. And I, that's not how I see this. I, I see a lot of these deaths as really avoidable. Um, I see them as the result of sort of systematic underfunding of the social care sector, for instance, when it came to care home deaths. And all of that was avoidable, and and there are people right now who have lost loved ones because of those decisions um, and that failure. So I feel very angry about all of it.
0: I mean, looking back at your your uh, your page on the Guardian, um, you know, you were writing about aspects of COVID from from the very beginning, but some of them were kind of very very personal. Some of them, of course, were like light hearted. Has this series sort of? changed your your view of the story and and i suppose what you think of your kind of you know what your journalism is about during this situation
1: i'm a features writer i write about anything i write about (laughs) what i'm asked to write about i'm not a health reporter and i don't want to be has it changed my journalism i mean there's no avoiding the fact that i've mostly written about covid all year. I don't think it's changed my journalism fundamentally. I'm interested in human stories, and this just happens to be one of the biggest human stories of our generation, Um, and so I'm writing about it. Has it changed my perspective on COVID? I knew it had been mishandled before, before I started doing this series, but I didn't realise quite how badly it had been mishandled. And I think I should also say that it wasn't just, it's not, this isn't all Matt Hancock's fault, like there's a a lot of collective failure from many different aspects of the government, local government, the private sector. Um, It's a real collective failure. And I suppose that—that that is one thing I did kind of change my opinion on. I think, Before all of this happened, I thought that the Tories were incompetent and handled the crisis badly, and I still think that. But I also think that there were a lot of sort of big structural problems that had been exposed during this pandemic, um, which go a lot deeper than any one government.
0: And do you think we're going to be kind of dealing with those and sort of unravelling them, whether, you know, through inquiries, uh, you know, or or sort of, you know, more long-term journalism for for like years to come? Not you personally.
1: (laughs) No, I hope, I hope. (laughs) To be honest, I haven't. I don't really have a desire to like spend the rest of my career writing about this. But um, I, yes, I. Th- I mean, there will be a public inquiry. The COVID nineteen bereaved families group um, is is calling for the inquiry to start now, uh, mostly so they can preserve documentation and make sure nothing gets destroyed. I think, family, I think inquiries can be useful for families, um, but I also think they can be a way for people to kick issues into the lawn grass and, and not really deal with them. I think most people would agree that the Grenfell inquiry has been pretty unsatisfactory. Yes, I think we're, we're all going to be talking about this for years. I, I mean, just the I remember being commissioned on, on COVID stories in February and just thinking, like, what is all this fuss about? <laughs> and and it just feels like, like life has just been sped up so much. You know, you look back at March or April or May and so much has happened. And I think that we're not going to come to terms with all of that for a really long time. Um, I certainly don't think I've come to terms with it. I think it's just been an incredibly arduous year for everyone, um, most of all for the people who've been ill or are still ill or who have lost loved ones. But... I think as a nation, we're going to be reflecting on this for an incredibly long time.
0: Uh, you also wrote a great piece in June about the return of illegal raves. Um, oh
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> and that just made me think that it's sort of many, many years ago when I, when I wrote for Mixmag. You know, every piece about clubbing obviously involved actually going clubbing. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know that, that that's the main the main sort of part of the reporting, um, and that seemed to epitomise to me, I suppose, one of the weirdnesses of being a journalist during this period what was it like was it really frustrating having to tell a story like that from uh from your desk essentially
1: uh yes i mean i really i also pleaded um with my editor to be allowed to go to an illegal rave and uh (laughs) (laughs) not just because i wanted to go raving um and uh they checked and they said no if i got sick they would just be they would just be too too bad um too many liabilities and also i guess they were genuinely concerned for my well-being and <laughs> they don't want me to, I don't know, these things can be dangerous. Um, you know, there's no proper health and safety there. I think if I got electrocuted by an amp whilst on a Guardian story, that would probably be quite bad. <laughs> uh, um, and no, it's not difficult to tell stories without being there in person. You have to, you it, you kind of have to ask people questions that they think are really weird <laughs> in order to be able to set the scene. So I wrote another piece about uh, illegal metal detecting during lockdown, and I wasn't able to go and look at all the sites that had been plundered. So I had to ask a police officer to go there, call me and then describe it for me in as much detail as possible. And she was she was an incredibly good sport about it. I'm sure she had much better things to be doing, Mm. Um, but I was just quite demanding and, I guess, quite um persistent and yeah she trudged up to the top of this hill phoned me from the top of the hill and described it to me so um you kind of have to do you have to depend on the generosity <laughs> of people with their time and be willing to ask really basic questions like you know how many trees are there what did you see what do the toilets look like mm. you have to you have to let those people to give you the details because you can't be there yourself
0: and the second wave is upon us. Don't know quite sort of how fast various lockdown measures are moving, in different parts of the, the country. This is this series going to continue for the foreseeable future?
1: So it's stopped for now, um, which is weird because um <laughs> it's <laughs> it's quite emotionally and uh sort of intellectually draining. I mean, I wrote seven, four thousand word profiles in just under two months. I'm going to be doing a shorter one, I think, later in the year. Um, but the profiles will only be 500 words long. I hope that I don't have to do this again. I, I hope that there's not a second wave. I, I hope that there aren't more mass deaths. I hope that the numbers, you know, flatten out and we don't we don't get much higher. I really don't know if it's if there's going to be such loss of life as there was in sort of March, April, May. Um, I basically hope there's not a need for there to be a loss of, loss of the virus part two, but I'm not optimistic at the po- at this point.
0: Well, do you think, um, I mean, because the de- the, the, certainly the death rates compared to infection, um, you know, does seem to have gone down. Do you think that that some of these lessons uh, that you're talking about, that you're writing about, I mean, have been learned, that some of these, these mistakes are not going to be repeated? Right? Like you said, you're not optimistic, but it, it seems that, some, some of this these failings, they're out there in black and white now.
1: Yes, I think we're in a much better place than we were. For example, we're not telling care home staff that they don't need to wear PPE for the first two, two weeks of April, which is what we were doing before. So, I mean, that's just an obvious net positive, right? Um, so, you know, will there be another sort of absolute bloodbath in our care homes? I, I think not. Because I think we have to remember, that, for for instance, one of the major reasons that we had all those deaths in care homes was because of the delayed discharge policy, which meant that people were basically discharged from hospital without being tested in care homes. And then once there, they were being looked after by people who weren't wearing PPE. So those are two things that aren't happening anymore. So that's two very positive steps that have finally been taken belatedly, which means that we shouldn't have such dramatic loss of life in the care home sector. Doctors know how to treat this a lot better now. They they know what drugs work on it. Um, we have more ventilator capacity. We have more PPE. Uh, people are a bit fatigued with social distancing, but I think they understand it. I mean, I didn't know what the word social distancing meant in March. Someone had to explain it to me. Um, I think things are going to be much better than they were first time around, but I don't think we've got it under control yet. I mean. We do not have a functioning test and trace system yet, which is something that baffles me (laughs) on a daily basis. I simply cannot understand how we have thrown all this money at it and we still don't have a functioning test and trace system. I think it is completely embarrassing um, and outrageous. Um, But I think things I I hope things can't get as bad as they did before, um, but I'm naturally a pessimist. So who knows?
0: Well, you're well-equipped uh,
1: for 2020 then. <laughs> yeah, I am. Having a half-glass-empty mentality when it comes to 2020 means that you won't be too disappointed.
0: Thanks for joining me.
1: No problem. Thank you for having me. Uh,
0: you can read all of Shirin Kale's stories, including the loss to the Virus series, on The Guardian website, where you might also consider becoming a subscriber or supporter. Thanks for listening to The Bunker Daily, and see you next time. bunker daily was presented by dorian linsky the producer was andrew harrison the assistant producer was jacob archbold and audio production was by me alex reese theme tune by kenny dickinson bunker daily is a podcast production